Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, October 19th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We're going to talk about a few different things on this week's show. We're going to start off talking about the latest outrage uh, enveloping the Trump administration, uh, President Donald Trump's response to uh, the deaths of four soldiers in Niger uh, earlier this month. Uh, There's been a big hubbub over uh, exactly when he called their families and what was said and in which he he brought in and criticized President Obama's response to Gold Star families, uh, some other uh, things and it kind of blew up into another one of these big stories that envelops the Trump administration. We're going to talk a little bit about what happened and going to dive into a story that Eliana Johnson wrote recently about uh, how distractions are substance for the Trump administration and and what that means. Uh, we're also going to talk about 2017 elections. We have governor's races coming up in New Jersey and Virginia. The Virginia one is especially uh, close and battlegroundy. So uh, we're going to dive into that a little bit and talk about the candidates and the campaigns and what we expect to happen in November and beyond as new governors take office in those states. And then we're going to talk about 2018. Uh, we've got, at this point, a little over a year to go until Election Day 2018. And most of the candidates that we're going to be talking about at that time are already in their races. We've got Republicans running against Democratic senators. We've got Democrats running against Republican House members. We're going to talk a little bit about who those people are, what binds them, and uh, how they're different from each other also and from what we've potentially seen in past elections. We're going to dive into all that and more in the third segment couple quick notes before we get going. Remember, you can email us questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. And also remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. All right, let's jump right in. Joining us for the first segment this week is national political, actually, White House reporter, I should say, Whoa. Eliana Johnson. Just Walk that back, Blair. Yeah. <laughs> White House reporter Eliana Johnson here in the studio. Paula. <laughs> and senior politics editor Charlie Montessian. Hey, Scott. All right. Um, so this first segment today, it's it's hard to outline a data point for this segment, um, but it'd also be hard to avoid talking about President Trump. Our data point is all yeah. the number of... Yeah. Uh, Talking about President Trump's comments on fallen troops this week, the president faced questions about whether he had reached out to the families of soldiers who died in Niger earlier this month. And the episode went on to include him accusing President Obama of not uh, paying the proper respect to the deceased troops' families. The traditional way, if you look at uh, President Obama and other presidents, most of them uh, didn't make calls. A lot of them didn't make calls. Invoking the deceased son of his chief of staff, John Kelly, and ultimately uh, yesterday feuding with a Democratic congresswoman who said that Trump was offensive in a call with a constituent whose husband had been killed. A lot going on here. This has been dominating uh, the the news this week. Um, Eliana, 
can you walk us through what happened here? And you wrote a very interesting story this morning about Trump's, you know, the, the, the Trump model of uh, the substance is distractions. It's the, the, the issues are what would have been distractions to other uh, presidents. What do, you, what do you mean by that? A president picked a fight over who cares more about the families of um, deceased troops. And I interpreted it. I think this can differ fairly, but I interpreted it essentially as him trying to contrast himself with Obama. He didn't compare himself to anybody else by name and suggested that Obama hadn't called any or very many or as many as as he did. Trump's a totally like good, better, best person and he's always the best and other people are not as – best as he is. But yeah, I started to get really annoyed going on, I don't know, like going on TV shows and people always ask, our editors too, this is such a distraction. He doesn't need this right now. It's distracting him from tax reform or it's distracting him from health care. And I think lawmakers and reporters, they all approach Trump with their own perception or their own understanding of what is substance and what is a distraction. And, you know, in most of our minds, substance is health care, it's tax reform, it's an infrastructure bill, it's basically it's legislation. And distraction is uh, the war on the press and the NFL, the fight with the NFL, and this fight over who uh, pays more attention or shows more compassion for Gold Star families. But I think in Trump's mind, basically, he's not somebody who's tremendously interested in legislation. Um, And what he is interested in and what he talked about the whole campaign are these sort of socio-cultural issues that relate in some way to American character, to patriotism. Um, And I think that for him is substance and uh, basically the – details of legislation is a distraction and that many of his voters feel the same way. And that so that's why you've seen the kind of consistent messaging from him on, say, the NFL and pummeling the NFL into submission over something like whether it's players stand for the national anthem that you haven't seen from him on health care. And you hear lawmakers all the time saying, is the White House going to make a case for this? Is the president going to barnstorm the country on this? No, he's barnstorming the country about the NFL because that's a substantive issue for him. That's where his heart is. That's where, what he's thinking about. That's what he really cares about. Um, so, yes, that's the case that I made in my piece. And I think it's the source of a lot of frustration and misunderstanding between the president and, I don't, I don't know, I guess I termed it official Washington or the rest of Washington. I found this really hard to think through and and uh, chew over this whole incident uh, surrounding the Gold Star families because it's not just the statement surrounding what other presidents did or didn't. Um, I mean, this I've had such a visceral reaction because, uh, I mean, this was one area that no one would ever tread in. No president would have ever taken on a family or talked about um, this issue in this way. And, it, and it's sad that, that that's where we're at right now, that uh, it's it's frustrating that the president would use that opportunity to take a shot at his predecessors, whether you're talking about President Obama, Bush, or anyone else. Uh, it's it's sad that it became an issue that we even have to talk about it at all. And it's especially sad when – I don't know if you guys saw those photos of uh, La David Johnson's uh, wife and kid. Uh, I mean it's just gut-wrenching. It is – I mean – 
it's hard to even talk about when you look at those pictures and what they're going through. And now this is becoming a political football. And I think the hardest part of of looking at this and trying to you know assess what it means or be objective about it is to think about we're we're in for three more years of this maximum uh, divisiveness, um, and it's so predictable. You can see how every. Uh, fight is going to to play out. It's like Groundhog Day. Each side is going to retreat to its corner. And this wouldn't have happened before because, for example, if a president had said, let's just let's stipulate that maybe uh, we don't know what Trump said on that call. Uh, let's stipulate that he did say something awkward, like he knew what he was in for or whatever. And, and at this point, it's not just Democratic Congresswoman saying that. It's been corroborated additionally by, I believe, the mother of the the, the deceased soldier. Okay, so let, let's stipulate that he did say that. There will be a fight. He will fight it out. It will be in the press. We will not focus on uh, the incredible life that uh, this soldier led. We will not focus on the uh, breathtaking heroism. Uh, and we will not talk about the courage and the service of these soldiers that, that died for their country. And it's just, it's mind-blowing. And to me, the, the real frustration is like the lack of self-awareness, the, the shamelessness of taking on this issue when no one else, no other president would have broached this. And it's not the first time. This is – we're now on the second dispute between our president and a Gold Star family. Uh, and that doesn't even count the mocking of John McCain's service, a guy who underwent brutal torture in the service of his country. And to me, it, it's – it's not only just blowing through all the boundaries we've ever had in the public arena, but it's setting a new standard of, like, what happens next after this? Do we go through this first whole term, and then what happens with the next president? The thing that, that stuck out with me and kind of along those lines I've been thinking about, Charlie, is that, the you know, the the a lot of people who are kind of looking for historical comparisons to, like, the social turmoil that's going on in the country right now end up – Picking moments in time that also happen to have been like moments of I- extremely divisive wars that were going on and that had captured like extreme popular attention, media, media attention, popular attention. And the, you know, the United States is still a country at war, but it's not, they are not wars that are getting a lot of attention at all. I don't think anyone on the street could tell you why U.S. troops were in Niger. In the first place, or more or less anywhere else in in the world, except maybe Afghanistan at this point, that like people would kind of understand uh, offhand why why someone was and just the the idea that this is happening under the radar is deeply disturbing to me. It's also narcissistic in a way that that uh, this fight is his fight is is entering into the public sphere. I can't I I refuse to believe that there was never a parent who screamed at LBJ or George W. Bush or even Barack Obama, screamed at them, maybe spit on them, maybe refused to to shake their hand or whatever, but that never got into the public. Those presidents respected what these families had gone through uh, enough to just keep their mouths shut. And everyone around them did. Members of Congress did. And now we're in an environment where all of those, uh, all of that is out the window. We never would have heard of it. There's no way that that didn't happen. You know, when you when you think about the kind of pain people would have gone through, uh, and and then having the opportunity to confront the president who sent their child uh, to war, it's just so frustrating. 
I, I thought so. Here, here's a data point for this segment. Actually, our colleague Steve Shepard had a story uh, yesterday about the Politico Morning Consult poll, and in the latest edition oh, of that the, was great, the yeah. poll, 46 percent of respondents said that they think the media fabricates stories about President Trump. Um, and it was hard not to think about that with this story blowing up and right. getting so much attention the last few days, and especially with uh, uh, Trump on Twitter and Sarah Huckabee Sanders in the White House briefing room railing at the media for um, not just not just what they were reporting about it, but for focusing on it. The president was very clear. He took the time to make a call to express his condolences, to thank the family for this individual's service. Um, and I think it, frankly, is a disgrace of the media to try to portray uh, an act of kindness uh, like that and that gesture and to try to make it into something that it isn't. It goes to show you, I mean, it was, I think, a, a very bracing reminder to those of us in the media. And, and I think it's an important one that we, we need to take uh, seriously is just how much his his one note messaging about fake news and constant focus on the press is a winning political issue for him. That's one thing. But what we really, I think, have this to is my whole point. Like these are substantive issues for the president and his base. They are not distractions from the legislative agenda. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is a lightning rod issue for him and his base. And here's, but here's the other thing: is that I wish we in the media would take more seriously the way we operate and figure out how can we restore our credibility and and burnish our stature in the minds of people who read it. I mean, there will always be a uh, a group of people who just believe it's all fake or or whatever. But for nearly half. Of this sample, regardless of, you know, who the sample was. I mean, it's our poll. We, we've looked at the numbers. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very good poll, a respected poll. Anything that high needs to be incredibly disturbing to the media that so many people think that literally we make stuff up. It's crazy. Nearly half of people in a, in a poll. And uh, I mean, look, I, there is a grain of truth to what people are, how people are replying to the poll and that the vast majority of the press does actually hate Trump and is inclined to believe the worst about him. That doesn't mean that reports contain false information, but I do really believe that most of the press loathes this guy. I wouldn't argue with that. Yeah. Like, I'd probably agree. I don't know if I'd be that strong like most of them loathe him, but uh, a large number of the media – uh, loathe him. And, you know, we, we have lots of credibility problems with conservatives to begin with. And I think, uh, you know, as, as a media veteran, I think for good reason. And um, but to the the idea that it's gotten this bad is is what is really alarming for for the media in general, that people don't understand what we do. Uh, and literally to the point where they think that it's kind of just made up from whole cloth. Yeah, I, I again, I, w I was extremely I mean, well. Everything about everything about this week has been disturbing so far, uh, basically. But that that you know, from a professional point of view, that was that was an unwelcome finding. Although I thought um, I thought I'm glad that uh, we investigated it and that Steve Steve wrote such an interesting story about that. Um, so that was this week's outrage. We will see what happens next week. But uh, thank you guys for for sharing your thoughts on that. Uh, for our next segment, we're going to talk about some upcoming elections, and we're going to welcome into the studio campaign reporter Kevin Robillard back with us for another tour. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Scott. Uh, so we are going to start off, we're going to talk about the two governor's races that are coming up in the next few weeks. We've got one in Virginia and one in New Jersey, and our data point for segment two is six. And that is just about the average Democratic lead in the polls of Virginia's governor's race. Uh, again, uh, election day coming up in a little over two weeks. Uh, 
Democrat Ralph Northam, the lieutenant governor, and Republican Ed Gillespie have been running a competitive race all year. Uh, we've been seeing polls all over the map in the past week, uh, double digits, you know, near tide, whatever. Kevin, what's your read on the state of play in Virginia and why – what's happening that's kind of making people in both parties a little concerned and nervous? So this is a battle between two establishment-oriented candidates, neither of whom has fired up their base very much. Uh, the polling all points to a Northam lead, along with basically all the other types of indicators we have. Uh, Northam has more money. He's gotten more money from small donors. Um, he's generally has been outspending Gillespie on TV recently, although Gillespie has made it more even this week. And really just everything we know points to a Northam victory. At the same time, Democrats are really nervous because there, A, is just this fear that the polls are all wrong. Public polling does not... Uh, help Democrats' feelings anymore after 2016. And the other thing, there's a worry that they just don't understand the electorate. Um, in this case, Ed Gillespie has been running a lot of ads, uh, sort of racially charged ads. Democrats have called them racist about um, MS-13, which is a gang with presence in Northern Virginia, a Latino gang, um, and basically trying to link that to a Northern vote against uh, – a Northern vote that – blocked a law barring sanctuary cities in Virginia. The thing is, there are no sanctuary cities in Virginia, so it was sort of a political showboat to begin with. Um, but all of this has just sort of combined to create this stew where Democrats are optimistic about this race, but also very, very anxious about it. Charlie, I thought that that point in was interesting about how like Democrats are kind of concerned that they just don't have a full handle on the forces that are moving the electorate right now. And especially what we see Ed Gillespie doing. This is a guy who's been in Republican politics for decades. And these are not the kind of campaigns that he advised people to run in the past. Uh, but now we see him kind of focusing on Confederate monuments. We see him focusing on um, this these like racially charged ads about gang violence. Yeah, and the dynamics are, are, are unusual, I think, in a lot of ways, too. I mean, in some ways, you've got the rural candidate, uh, Northam, the Democrat, who's getting killed among rural voters. And you've got the, the candidate from Northern Virginia, Gillespie, who's getting killed in, in Northern Virginia. So that's sort of flipped upside down. And then you've got these X factors, these, these the, the, tr the, the Trump issues, for lack of a better uh, description, the idea of uh, you know uh, Confederate monuments, uh, illegal immigration, sanctuary cities, gang violence, all of these cultural web wedge issues that have replaced the old old cultural wedge issues that we knew of before. And I think Democrats aren't sure how to respond to them. Uh, they uh, don't trust the polls anymore. And they also know – one thing they do know is that their brand is in the toilet. I mean we know every, we know all the problems that, that the Republicans have. We see that in the polling. Uh, in many, It's expressed in many different ways. What gets less attention is the idea that voters aren't exactly sold on the Democratic Party either. They're not offering an alternative – that voters are flocking to in any way. They're not taking advantage of the problems that Republicans are having uh, in their case. Yeah, and I think that would be almost part of a progressive critique of the Northam campaign. Uh, Northam beat Tom Perriello, the former congressman in the Democratic primary. And, you know, you've seen some progressives as there's been some polls showing Northam with a small lead. There's only been one poll ever showing Gillespie with a lead since the primary. Um, they've basically been saying, well, Northam's offering them nothing. You know, the, Northam's not out there pushing big, bold, progressive ideas. He's not really offering them an alternative. And that's why his lead's not bigger. Uh, at the same time, the Northam campaign would probably say, well, Perriello would be getting hit for a lot of other things that Northam's not getting hit for right now. But overall, this is just uncertainty and, you know, no amount of 
consistent public polling. And the public polling has been really very consistent, showing Northam with like a four to six point lead. People just – it doesn't calm Democrats down anymore. One thing I think though that we can be fairly certain of is that this is – of the two governor's races that are happening this year, the two in, in November, New Jersey and, and Virginia, this is going to be the one that resonates. This is going to be the one that influences the other races and gives us a snapshot at what the 2018 landscape is going to look like because – the, Trump, the Trumpian issues are in play, but also Gillespie has had to tread very carefully on them. He hasn't been able to do the full, uh, the full Trump because in part of, of the nature of Virginia politics and, and the Virginia landscape. I mean he has – You don't think that would be believable from Ed Gillespie? <laughs> no, it's, it's not really Gillespie. It's mostly just the, the architecture of, of a victory in, in a place like Virginia because Gillespie has to do better in northern Virginia where most of the population is. And that is the area where Trump got killed last year. Trump, Trump – you know Fairfax County? The, the, Fairfax County is the big suburban county outside D.C. It is the, the population behemoth in Virginia. Trump won – 29% there. He couldn't even win one out of three voters in a place that used to be a Republican stronghold up until about uh, 20 years ago. And so uh, Gillespie has had to be very careful in the way he's broached these issues. But the fact that they're in the bloodstream, uh, I think, will give us an idea after the election in Virginia of what 2018 is going to look like and how hard Republican candidates are going to go after this or not, or, or not pursue and prosecute these Trumpian issues. Yeah, at times it seems like Gillespie's wanted to run a Trumpian campaign without Trump. And the one person who I could really compare this to is uh, Republican Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania kind of did a similar trick last year where he ran lots of ads on some of these Trumpian issues. In Toomey's case, it was more national security focused, although he did really talk about sanctuary cities quite a bit too. Uh, in Gillespie's case, it's sanctuary cities and Confederate statues. But at the same time, both of these candidates are really keeping their distance from Trump. When Trump endorsed Gillespie uh, at this point a few weeks ago, Gillespie basically tried to downplay it. He said, you know, I don't really understand why this is news that the Republican president would endorse the Republican candidate for governor, which I've never heard a candidate <laughs> less enthused about a presidential he endorsement. He didn't even retweet his tweet, did he? he? Yeah, he didn't do that. Um Vice President Mike Pence came and campaigned with Gillespie, but that also got lower than expected turnout at that rally. It's been very interesting. Um, Gillespie clearly knows that Trump is poison for him, but at the same time needs Trump's voters to show up for him. And when and with the Confederate statues in sanctuary cities, that's he's trying to give them a reason. To but do Trump so. is poison only in parts of the state, and that's yeah, the conundrum right. that all Republicans and including Toomey is going to fit, or er, mm -hmm. including the Republican nominee in Pennsylvania Senate race. Mm -hmm. You know the the next. Uh, big race in Pennsylvania, which is in many parts of the state, Trump is wildly popular. Like mm -hmm. if you were to go out to, you know, probably parts of Southside to Southwest Virginia, mm -hmm. you know, Trump is wildly popular there. He, he rolled up the vote in November. He's just as popular, if not more popular now. But then again, there's the problem you're talking about, which is Northern Virginia and all the population centers that, uh, you know, uh, find uh, Trump, you know, not easy to take in any way. And the polls show that. Well, and the, the interesting thing about this just looking forward to 2018, there are relatively few Senate races where this is going to play, right? The Senate map, as we've talked about ad nauseum, is is tilted like wildly in the direction of red states and some some states that there is literally no place where Trump isn't wildly popular, right? Places like uh, uh, North Dakota and West Virginia, um, Indiana, Missouri, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then then there are some kind of uh, less, less red states that Trump still won, like Pennsylvania uh, dotted in there. But um, I guess this will be something that Republican 
Republican senators are facing in Arizona and Nevada, right, who have been critical of Trump and kind of need to tie the base together while still appealing to Phoenix and Las Vegas, right? Well, what I'm fascinated about is and watching really closely is the, the states that are really going to show us the contours of the swing state map in, in 2020. I think we're going to see, you know, for, for the last couple uh, election cycles, you know, maybe for almost two decades, it's almost been like a World War One style uh, battle, trench warfare. Nothing really changes. The map is the same all the time. Swing states are the same all the time. I think what we might see in 2020 is an entirely different swing state map some, where some states that were swing states in the past are not considered competitive. And some states that were considered locked down for one party or the other are suddenly in the mix. So, for example, Arizona becomes a swing state. Virginia will be really fascinating now mm-hmm. because we will understand now, is Virginia still a swing state or is it, should we now... C- count it as a blue democratic mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. I think Pen- if... Yeah, if, then the other question is Pennsylvania. What is, what is that? Yeah, and I think if you see a Northam win by seven or eight points and then uh, Senator Tim Kaine follows that up with a pretty big win in 2018, uh, which I think a lot of people are expecting right now, it's going to be very interesting to see if Republicans keep looking at Virginia as a swing state. Yeah, they won't. I mean, it'll, it'll be done. And also, it won't be considered uh, part of the South anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Let me... I want to... Uh, Switch gears from Virginia is going to be fascinating. I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens there. I want to make sure we talk about New Jersey, though, because uh, even though, as we mentioned, the the New Jersey governor's race is not close. Democrat Phil Murphy is blowing Republican uh, Kim Guadagno out of the water. Uh, She's Christie's lieutenant governor and Chris Christie is wildly unpopular there. Uh, However, there is something interesting going on here. I think it's notable that Phil Murphy is running – he – he will, you know, if if he ends up winning as as is expected, I think there's an argument to be made that he he will have the most progressive winning platform of any governor candidate in history. Um, and this is a state where Democrats control the legislature, so he will come into office with the opportunity to do some big things if they can. You know, there, there's as Republicans in Congress are showing us now, there's more there's more to legislating than just having party control of the legislative body, but. You know, Phil Murphy's running on a $15 minimum wage, a big millionaire's tax, legalized marijuana, criminal justice reform, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, that could be a fascinating experiment in in the uh, new progressive platform in New Jersey next year uh, if, as we assume, he ends up winning. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a it's a really fascinating observation. I think, I think you're right. It is as progressive a gubernatorial platform as I've heard, um, but... I don't believe any of it's going to happen, really. I just I question whether <laughs> no seriously, like I, I question whether New Jersey is progressive enough to pass uh, that agenda. Meaning, just because it's a very blue lockdown blue state, it doesn't mean it's progressive. And I mean, you've got lots of little parties within that Democratic Party. Uh, you've got lots of folks that will not be on board uh, for that entire agenda. And then also keep in mind that it would be pretty remarkable to careen from two Christie victories to. Uh, a progressive agenda like that, and that's you know uh, those are the reasons why I just I don't believe it's going to happen. Maybe maybe he wins with that agenda, but I don't believe that he is able to execute that agenda. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's sort of remarkable that he's running on an agenda that progressive. This really is a case where Christie is probably unpopular enough that you know people say Democrats need to have a message beyond the other guys stink. Phil Murphy could have won this race just by repeatedly saying Christie stinks. Um, Chris Christie is that unpopular in the state. And look, I think you're you're right that there's many parties, particularly in in New Jersey, which has all these machine politics and all sorts of complicated factors like that. 
but I think it is interesting because I think a lot of Democrats are going to point to Murphy winning here and saying, look, we can do this. And there's going to be people who use Murphy's victory as an argument in their own primary campaigns. You're going to see someone like Ben Jealous in Maryland say, look, if Phil Murphy can do this in New Jersey, we're from Maryland. We're even more Democratic than New Jersey. I can run on a similar platform and beat Larry Hogan. I, I think you could do that in Maryland. I, I mm-hmm. don't in New Jersey in part because I think Christie gives, gave Murphy the permission structure to run like this. I mean mm-hmm. he, he – Murphy could be talking – it doesn't matter what, what, what Murphy is promising. It doesn't matter what his platform is. People hate Chris Christie and this election is all about Chris Christie. Uh, and I don't think it has to, anything to do with any other issues. And we're also forgetting the fact that New Jersey, among the big industrial states, is as dirty a machine state as it gets. I mean, I, I know that's a really strong statement, but would anyone here care to argue otherwise? I mean, as big industrial states go, I mean, it is trapped in, uh, you know, it's like a, tra- a system that's trapped in amber mm-hmm. with like a whole bunch of barons that, you know, run their counties and in their little fiefdoms. It, it does not operate like uh, other states of its size and uh, ilk. Virginia, uh, Virginia is going to be the more interesting election. I think New Jersey is arguably going to be the more interesting aftermath. So we're, we'll keep an eye on both and uh, report Back to you all, our listeners, but uh, tune in. Uh, we're going to have coverage on Politico uh, in in a few weeks uh, of the of both of those elections, uh, especially you know Virginia if it goes down to the wire, maybe a surprise result for Gillespie, or if Northam manages to kind of take this one away comfortably. Um, you can read all about it. Wait, Kevin, lightning round question: Who wins in Virginia? One answer: Northam. Ooh, I'm going to go with Gillespie. Oh, Eliana, tiebreaker. Come on. Oh man. Take your time. We got all day. Oh, there okay. is a libertarian on the ballot, so you could <laughs> you, you could make it a one 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 tie. I'm gonna go with Gillespie too. Wow. Yeah. All right. Come back. All right. Well, let's keep talking about how some of the stuff happening now projects forward into those big 2018 midterm elections that are coming up next year. Uh, our next data point um, is the number four, and we're using this. You know, a lot of the people that we're going to be talking about at this time next year are already running for. Uh, the the seats that they're gunning for. We've got Republicans piling into these Democratic-held Senate uh, races. We've got Democrats piling into all these Republican-held House districts around the country. And four is – this is the number of uh, Steve Bannon's anointed outsider Republican Senate candidates who also happen to have been anointed by the party insiders in the Republican Party. Um, Annie Carney, our colleague, wrote a great piece this week on the overlap between Bannon's supposed revolution and what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell might like to see happen. And so, you know, in Montana, in Ohio, in Missouri, three top targets that they're looking to uh, to flip. Um, the you know Bannon's choice and McConnell's choice actually align, and uh, they they also do in Tennessee, where Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn is running to replace Bob Corker, who's retiring. So, Charlie, what does what does this say about kind of what we're seeing develop in these Republican primaries and and in the 2018 politics writ large? You know, it seems to me that despite this outsider friendly political moment, what we're seeing is what we've seen a lot of times in the past: a lot of insiders who talk like outsiders. Yeah, I think there's a, a an island of misfit toys. Uh, that's that's sh- taking shape around the, the Bannonite candidates. That's what it looks like to me because you've got some who are clearly establishment candidates that are simply rebranding themselves. They would – whatever the environment would be, if it was 2010, they'd be rebranding themselves as Tea Party candidates and that's just what politicians do. Um, but at their heart, they're establishment candidates. And then you've got another collection 
uh, which which is what makes this such a misfit collection. This other collection of candidates that are bomb throwers, that they are they were considered non-viable. Uh, they had been exiled by their own parties. Uh, they are uh, the kinds of party that every er, the kind of candidate that every candidate across the map is going to have to answer for their wild statements. They're the Roy Moore t- types, and so that collection itself it just tells you something. Uh, I think about. The, the moment, and it tells you something about the contradictions there, that are at the center of the Trump movement. He is a candidate who ran a populist campaign, yet surrounded himself and stocks his candidate with millionaires and billionaires. You know, uh, as we learned over time, the the way he conducted his his business is at odds with the kinds of policies he pursues as president. So there are contradictions at the heart of the Trump administration, the candidate himself who, who started this. And so we shouldn't be surprised that there are contradictions at the heart of Steve Bannon's collection of candidates. Well, I, I do think this speaks to the fact to the – well, yes, speaks to the fact that this – that Bannon has built up a persona that is belied in many ways by the facts and a lot of it is shtick and – personality, uh, including the idea that, um, you know, his claim that he was going to fight the war from outside the White House when most of what he does is um, create problems for the administration and talk behind uh, people's backs who, (laughs) you know, work in the White House. Um, Bannon is advanced. He's got his own agenda, um, things he's doing for, you know, who, who knows why. But the whole thing is is a shtick that needs to be looked at, you know, carefully to understand what's actually going on. I, w- I would say just, you know, I think that there actually is some order in in the way these things break down. But I, you know, not that not that it necessarily speaks speaks well of, of the, the difference between Bannon's uh, what Bannon says and what he's actually doing. But they're they're essentially they they've gotten as as Charlie said these these outcasts these outsiders to run against sitting Republican senators and they're grabbing insiders to run against Democratic senators. Mm-hmm. Their Attorney General Josh Hawley in Missouri, who's a longtime favorite of the Republican legal circles, um, uh, Josh Mandel, who was the Republican nominee in 2012 uh, in Ohio and is running again in 2018. I could you know list a few others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think. Part of what you're saying is there's been some report where Bannon is demanding that all these people he's going to back vote against uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, which, you know, is a very, very difficult thing to believe. It's very difficult to believe that Josh Mandel, who the NRSC spent millions for in 2012, is suddenly going to be, you know, an anti-McConnell bomb thrower. The same thing is true of Josh Hawley. The same thing is true of a lot of these other people. Uh, Luke Messer has always been a favorite of leadership if he gets through in Indiana. Uh, Todd Rokita isn't someone who's necessarily been out there pushing uh, leadership if he gets through in Indiana. The other part about this and the the whole sort of Bannon versus McConnell element of this is the Senate elections for majority leader don't work like the elections for House Speaker. McConnell just needs a majority of the caucus, not a majority of the full Senate. Right. The House House Speaker needs to win to an, a majority of the House on mm. the floor. Yeah, Senate majority leader doesn't work like that. That's a party position. It's yeah. not a Senate position. So even if Bannon is somehow able to replace all these Republicans with anti with anti McConnell people, McConnell will still manage to hold on to the caucus. It's just that's how the math works. There's too many people who are loyal to him. So it's it's just been an interesting thing watching. Bannon sort of portray this as a war on Mitch McConnell when it's not clear he has any ability whatsoever to oust him. 
It seems like uh, Eliana makes a really important point here to, to keep in mind uh, and that everybody uh, ought to keep in mind when they when they read about the, the Bannon movement. And your point, and tell me if, if I'm wrong, is that the, the Bannon movement, which is uh, ostensibly about creating revolution, may be more of a personal vehicle for uh, Steve Bannon than an insurgency. And I think uh, that that is a cynical take, but probably an accurate one, and one that I, I don't disagree with. Mm-hmm. Kevin, one one point um, that you and I have talked about in in covering these candidates, where the the overlap between the you know the, the recruits from these different wings of the party, um, this is where Senate Republicans have had success. Uh, picking up seats in the last few years when they've had people come out of primaries who unified the different wings of the party. And in the past, that was, you know, Chamber of Commerce and the Club for Growth, things mm-hmm. like that. Now there's obviously a few more different characters and personalities in play, but that that's where they had success picking up Arkansas and Alaska mm-hmm. and, and other states in 2014. What's kind of the state of play of the 2018 map so far? We've mentioned Democrats are on defense. They've got 25 seats to defend, including 10 uh, in states that were won by Trump. But mm-hmm. there has been some feeling lately among Democrats that they're set up a little better than they would have thought. Yeah, I think one key part of that is they feel very good about both Nevada and Arizona. And that's in part because, you know, Bannon back challengers to uh, Jeff Flake and to Dean Heller in Nevada are, you know, making it more difficult for those candidates to win, particularly Flake, who really goes out of his way to stick you know, his finger in the Republican base's eye constantly by insulting Trump. Uh, That is a thing where they think even if Flake survives his primary, those voters just aren't going to show up and vote for him. And that will really give uh, Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema, their candidate, a very good chance to win that race. On On the other hand, the other thing that's making Democrats feel better is they see a lot of their incumbents they think are in stronger position than they previously would have expected. That includes candidates in some of the most Trump-friendly states on the map. They think John Tester in Montana is in a really good position. They think Joe Manchin in West Virginia is in a really good position. Some of the candidates they're actually more worried about are actually now in some of these less Trump-friendly states. You'll still hear some worries about Bob Casey. You'll still hear some worries about Debbie Stabenow. Uh, You hear worries about Heidi Heitkamp, although her state certainly is Trump-friendly. And of course, the two they're most concerned about very consistently are uh, Claire McCaskill in Missouri and Joe Donnelly in Indiana. Not Bill Nelson Florida? Bill Nelson in Florida is almost an entirely separate case. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Florida is its own political world in many ways. And I think it's a total matter where if Rick Scott gets in, they're incredibly worried. If Rick Scott doesn't get in, they think Nelson will walk to re-election. Most people do think Scott gets in. But they also think that Scott's response to the hurricanes, particularly there's a scandal sort of surrounding his involvement uh, with evacuating a nursing home where some people ended up dying or actually the failure, I guess, to evacuate a nursing home. Uh, They really think that scandal will hurt Scott and that Nelson can really use that against him. I'm I'm struck by the symmetry as you talk uh, talk through some of those Democratic candidates also of, again, insiders who talk like outsiders, Mm -hmm. right? Like. Uh, a lot of these incumbents are well. They've all been in for at least a term. Some of them for Every two or three. Of the Tea Party movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, exactly. And but you've got like John Tester. Mm-hmm. You know, he not only is he a two-term senator, he was, I think, president of the state senate in Montana mm-hmm. for a while before. This is a guy who's been a legislator for a long time. But he's got a flat top, and he brings his own meat from Montana to Washington to cook mm-hmm. when when he and you know all these other uh, kind of personality quirks. Claire McCaskill talks like an outsider. Uh, even though she she has been running for office forever mm-hmm. um, and been in office her forever, life, her yeah. Life, yeah. 
Um, so I don't know. I think that there's just like there's. I I wonder how how equipped some of these people. No matter how good they look right now, and with the political environment the way it is, I wonder what happens by the time we get to September, October, a year from now, mm-hmm. and whether that that comes back to bite them, or if the fact that they're the opponents kind of also have this. Um, insider and outsider's clothing thing going on that, that it nullifies it all. I don't know. I'm fascinated to see how it turns out. I will not pretend to have any of the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's shift gears quickly uh, before we run out of time here. I want to talk briefly also about, you know, we've talked about what the Republican candidates for Senate look like. I want to talk about what the Democratic candidates for House look like. And there are a lot of them. We just had an FEC deadline this week, campaign finance reports for hundreds and hundreds of candidates across the map. And we counted up 162 Democrats running in Republican-held districts who raised at least $100,000 so far this year. Um, And that is... That is almost four times. That's about four times the number that Democrats had in each of the last two election cycles at this time, and more than twice as many as Republicans had at this point in the 2010 election cycle. So, obviously, there's a lot of these folks, and they're going to make some of these races competitive. But you know, who are they at this point? One thing they're not—they're not state legislators. They're not people who we would traditionally have expected to be, you know, stepping up into that from from the state houses to to the federal house right charlie the, that that pipeline is kind of closed down again because i think partly because of this thirst for outsiders that we've been talking about but i i guess i would disagree with with that uh yeah i, I mean i think it is the traditional pipeline plus rather than ah. the traditional pipeline has been uh broken uh, i think you still see lots of uh, people who have been running for office forever and held office forever uh so you've got all those people but what you do have is this new class of candidates that, that you're talking about folks that have never been in the arena before that uh many of them have been uh, uh many of them energized by donald trump uh who have, would not have run uh, but for donald trump and they they're finding that uh, their friends, their colleagues are equally energized and they're able to raise tons of money online uh, or just through, you know, uh, organizing uh, on, the, on the left. And I think that has changed the, the, the candidate pipeline in a way that we haven't seen uh, for a very long time. The I think that the other thing that we've seen, we've seen people who have maybe been involved in government but not in elected positions running. We're seeing dozens and dozens of people who worked in the Obama administration running. We've seen people who are working in kind of state state or local levels who have kind of built up these political networks but have never have never actually put their name on a ballot before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it one interesting thing that we didn't really have during the Obama years, because the Bush administration was so popular, even if someone had worked in the Bush administration Unpopular. Unpopular, rather, at the end. People weren't bragging about it. I think having this still popular Democratic president could really be an asset for Democrats over the next few years, just because Obama might also feel more motivated to come out and campaign for some of these people, uh, which Obama's political involvement since his uh, departure from office has been shaky. But I think that's really proving to be a big asset for Democrats right now, at least in this early stage, where these candidates sort of have instant viability by saying, look, this is what I did in the White House, or this is what I did in the State Department. And it instantly sort of shows them to be serious people. And they all have these networks that they built up. I've got a theory on this, too. And and feel free to... uh call me out if this is total BS. Uh, but I think most of, if not all of it holds, it, it, 
you know, I've, I've always been interested in the idea of who runs for office and um, the idea that there is a, you know, a form system for candidates and there is a pipeline for candidates. And if you look back to say, you know, look back to the Watergate era. After the Watergate era, it had a devastating effect on the Republican far, par, Party and a catalytic effect on the Democratic Party, which went on to uh, hold the House for – not went on, but it, it continued to hold the House for decades after that, two decades after that at least. Uh, and they also controlled governorships, legislatures to the degree almost of dominance that Republicans have, not quite to the level they have today, but something similar. And it was largely because all of these folks that came out of the anti-war, the consumer, uh, the environmental, the civil rights movement, all decided that the next step for them was to run for government. And they ran for all these offices and won and held them for you know a good 20 years or so and dominated most levels of American government. Then in the 90s, everything changed. And my feeling is that that was a result of the Reagan revolution, that a, a, a a generation of people that were inspired by Ronald Reagan, and uh, he had almost uh, sent a message to them that government is not the dirty creature that you thought it was, that uh, all of your goals can best be, or not maybe not best be pursued, but can be honorably pursued through the control of the levers of federal government. And that's how you saw the Republican Revolution in 1994 winning back the House. You had all sorts of young people that were running. Many of those candidates in the class of 94 were younger than we were we had expected. They came from different professions than Republicans had typically come from. Uh, and I thought that that was – they had learned from the Reagan example. Now I think – on the Democratic side, I think you got a convergence of factors. You know, some of it is uh, folks that were very young uh, and got their start in politics in the anti-Iraq uh, war involvement movement against George Bush. They're now beginning to come to an age where they're they've decided they want to run for election. Uh, maybe it was uh, maybe they they uh, became more politically aware during the uh, the Obama era, and suddenly Trump has catalyzed all of that and has changed the pipeline in a noticeable way that, you know, looking back maybe 10 years or so, we'll look back and say this was another pivotal moment in terms of formation of candidates. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think one thing that um, was a political shift that I think didn't get fully remarked upon as it happened was sort of the shift from Gen X to millennials. I know everyone hates the word millennials, including myself, and I am one. Um, but millennials are remarked, markedly more liberal than Gen X was. We always tend to think of young people as just being liberal, but millennials are markedly more liberal and were markedly more likely to vote when they were younger. Uh, and that was a shift a lot of people missed. But I think one thing that is now happening is those millennials who were inspired by Barack Obama, some of them are very young. You're seeing some of them running for office. If you look at the House of Delegates in Virginia, you saw a lot of younger candidates, people in their 30s, people in their late 20s running for office. And most of these people, when you ask them why are you running, say they're more inspired by opposition to Trump than necessarily by Barack Obama. But I think this is definitely a trend. Do you think Trump will inspire a bunch of like octogenarians to come out <laughs> and run like his demographic? I think, I, I mean, some of the some of these candidates for Senate are pretty old. They're, uh, Foster Fries is talking about running against John Barrasso. And how, how old is he? He's, yes. he's in his the, 70s. The, the old billionaire. The old billionaire. How the old year is, of the old billionaire. How old is the oldest millennial? What's uh, the back end of that? I think early 30s at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So early 30s. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other, you know, depending on your perspective, podcast audience, I guess, probably would enjoy it, but it's probably scary for other people. There's going to be a lot more millennials in Congress one way or another (laughs) uh, at at this time, uh, you know, in in two years. Um, We'll have to see how that all shakes out. You know, maybe 
more you know the, they'll install some new coffee machines and stuff like that right artisan <laughs> podcast <laughs> all right i think we should just uh quit while we're ahead there um charlie thanks so much for being here this week thanks for having me kevin thank Great you to be here. eliana thank you very much and as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Remember, if you have questions for us, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And please remember, subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. We love getting your feedback. It helps us make the show better. And uh, we just like to hear from you and know that you're out there. So remember, uh, subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, uh, and our researcher and Politico Playbook web producer, Zach Montalaro. That's it for us. We will talk to you again next week.